The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. All right, please turn to Mark chapter 2, if you will, please. Mark chapter 2, page number 837, if you're using one of the Bibles there in front of you. I'll say after uh, Ed's announcement earlier about tonight's uh, course seminar, I feel a little... um, intimidated or uh, maybe insecure, it's not because of all of the praise he heaped on me, it's because I apparently am supposed to teach about church history, and I did not know that. I'm teaching on biblical history, so a little different, a little different, but I appreciate that, but if you want church history, we can do that, it just will be really bad. So, (laughs) you choose, let me know tonight, I'll come prepared for both. Here in Mark chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 12, and then we'll go to the Lord and ask his blessing on our time together, if you will. Look at verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Pray. Jesus, you are, as we saw last week, a man that is unlike any other man And here we are just 12 verses into chapter 2, and already, both in chapter 1 and here in chapter 2, again and again and again, we get to watch people be amazed by you. They've never seen anything like you. And yet for us, Lord, there are far too many people sitting in this room who simply take you for granted. We've heard these stories our whole life. We've, We've heard about you our entire lives in many cases, and so you're just a character on a page, but... You are far more than that. And so this morning, Lord, we ask your forgiveness for feeling that way towards you, for becoming calloused in our hearts towards you. We ask that you will meet us this morning and remove those calluses and help us to see with eyes filled with amazement who you are. To believe, in fact, to act out, to live out this truth that you are unlike any other man. And so we come again this week to study you, to learn from you, to walk with you, to listen to you, and ultimately, Lord, to be like you. Please speak to us this morning, we ask through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, does anyone else in here uh, besides me struggle with um, remembering when you have told a story to someone before and when you haven't, so that you end up telling the same stories to people over and over again? I've seen a number of wives in this quick scan look at their husbands like, 
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm one of those people I struggle. Now, thankfully for Jamie and I, when I start to tell her a story I've told her before, she's comfortable enough with me. She just says, you've said that, and I shut up. Uh, everybody else is still polite to me, and so I continue to uh, tell the same stories. And this morning, I'm going to risk that because I want to tell you a story that I cannot for the life of me remember if I have told you before. I searched through every one of my sermon notes. Macs are awesome, by the way. I searched through every one of my sermon notes to see if there was any reference to this, and I can't find one, but somewhere in the back of my mind, I feel like I've said this. So just smile and nod and pretend like you've never heard this before. This is a story from when I was about 11 or 12 years old, right around there, and we lived in a small house right outside the city limits of Goldsboro, North Carolina. It was a a modest one-story home. It wasn't very big or flashy. It was nice, don't get me wrong. It was just a, a regular house in a small neighborhood in North Carolina. But you need to understand something about neighborhoods in North Carolina where I'm from. They're not like neighborhoods here. See, every house in our neighborhood was on a minimum of probably to a third, a quarter of an acre, which isn't really that much when you get right down to it. But around here, that's like six how that is the neighborhood right there a third to a quarter of an acre is an entire neighborhood it's like 15 townhomes in virginia beach there everybody had a a nice nice little piece of property that you could call your own so the, the our property was broken up into these three parts we had a front yard right which was probably about the twice the size of our front yard if you've been to our house that'll give you some idea of its size we had a, a very large fenced in backyard probably six or eight times the size of our backyard and then out behind that was a field. And when I say field, don't picture, you know, crops growing. The only crop that grew in this field was milkweed. Who knows milkweed? Isn't, I think a level of hell is dedicated to that weed because it's nasty to touch. And if you break it by chance and it oozes out that thick glue, like whatever yucky, nasty stuff, and it gets on you, there is no getting that off apart from a hot shower. That stuff is horrible, and that's all that field grew. And the only thing else that was out there was one of those huge power things. I don't know what you call them, the big metal ones that have four legs. And and if I saw my children doing this, I would kill them. We used to play on that. High voltage lines, right? And we climb up the thing, and I just marvel sometimes at the stuff we did as kids. And, man, I would never let Nathaniel or Hannah try that. But that was, that was our property. And because it was kind of big, we had a riding lawnmower. And even with the riding lawnmower, it took two or three hours to cut this thing. And when you got done with that, then, of course, you had to go back around with the push mower and and trim everything up. And so if you could find a way to cut a corner, speed that process up as an 11- or 12-year-old boy, what do you do? You take it, right? You, You speed that process up. So one day, I'm out cutting the grass. I'm in the backyard by this set of pine trees that had azalea bushes around them. And there was this one azalea bush that was like dead or dying right beside one of the pine trees and I thought man if I cut this thing down I could get around behind the the bushes easier and cut along the fence line be it just would speed me up a little bit and the bush is dying anyway I'm sure mom and dad won't care didn't ask permission they would have given it had I asked but I, I take the mower and I push it up on its back wheels and I go over top of the bush and as I start to come down I realize that this was a bad idea because Underneath this bush was a hive of yellow jackets. (gasps) Now, I don't know how much you know about yellow jackets. There are basically two types of yellow jackets in North America. There's one type that builds their nests, their hives up high in trees and the eaves of houses and those things. 
There is the larger portion of yellow jackets in North America that burrow underground and build very elaborate hives underground. And how we had gone so long not knowing about this, I to this day don't know. Never had really been bothered by them. I, of course, had never tried to mow over their home either, so uh, that could be the reason why. But as I come down, out come the yellow jackets. And, of course, I do the only reasonable thing that anyone would do. I immediately begin to run and scream like a little girl, right? (laughs) Toward the house as fast as I can. I'm slapping. I'm hitting. They're all over me. My dad, who's in the house, must have heard the mower turn off and heard me start screaming. I don't know what he originally thought had happened. But he's coming to the back door as I'm, like, leaping over the wall into our carport. He's asking me what's going on. But then he can see that I'm slapping. There's stuff flying. He grabs me pulls me in the house, slams the door. There are yellow jackets up inside my clothes at this point. There's a bedroom right off the back door. He throws me on the bed. I'm pulling my clothes off. He's hitting me. <laughs> He's getting stung. It was terrible. I think it lasted an hour. Okay? It, I know that's not really true because as fast as he was moving, as fast as I was moving, it had to have been done in like a minute. All in all, I don't know how many times I was stung because yellow jackets aren't like bees. And when they sting you, their stingers don't come out, which means they can keep stinging you over and over again. I know I had about 13 to 15 very large welt spots all over my body uh, from this incident. Uh, And, you know, praise the Lord for good parents, right? Instantly, mom goes into action, dad goes into action. After this is all kind of subtle, mom goes to the kitchen and begins to make... Her home remedy, which is going to sound weird, but it actually kind of works, it's a meat tenderizer and water as a paste. Rub that into a a bite or a sting, and it it hurts when it first goes in, but it feels good after about five minutes, and and you actually have a lot of the pain gone. So I'm covered in meat tenderizer, which is why I'm so sweet and tender today. Uh, My wife laughed at that. Um, I'm covered in meat tenderizer. Dad, on the other hand, has like he's waiting. He's not going outside yet because those those yellow jackets are angry. Uh, but at dusk, he goes out and he carefully pulls the mower back and he takes a gallon of gasoline, pours it on. And whew, no more yellow jackets. Two, two things came out of that for me. One, for about the next ten years, no lie, I had a deep fear of any kind of flying, stinging bug. I mean, if a bee was flying at me, I moved out of the way. I'm like, you can have the airspace. I will wait for you and let them go. I, I'm serious. It was probably college or right after college before I finally started letting logic kind of trump my fear and tell me, you know what, if, I'm, if I don't bother him, he's not going to bother me. But even then, I was like, oh, don't you know, I don't hurt me. I was scared of them for a while. You would be too if you'd gotten attacked like that. It was traumatic for me, or maybe I'm just a wuss. But that, that was one thing that came out of it. Second thing that came out of it, was I started using a, a figure of speech that I am pretty sure I had heard previous to this incident, but fully appreciated until now. And it's the old saying that you don't throw rocks at hornet's nest for fun. You ever heard that saying? You just don't do that. Now, granted, I didn't throw a rock at the hornet's nest for fun. Mine was an accident. I had no idea they were there. Had I known, I would never, never in a million years have done that. But in that saying, in that phrase, it's normally referencing uh, a situation where people just purposely stir up a problem, stir up controversy, stir up strife, just for the pure fun of it. And there are people out there like that. I can be one of those every now and then. Um, But generally speaking, when when I'm dealing with problems, I I use this phrase to indicate that I don't want to just walk into it for the sheer fun. Sometimes you walk into problems accidentally. 
Sometimes you walk into problems because someone needs to walk into them, right? You hear something, you see something, something needs to be said or done, and so, so you do it, you say it. But just to get into the mix of something for the pure fun of it, I, I kind of think that's stupid. Well, thankfully, that's not what we have before us today here in Mark chapter 2. As you know from our time together last Sunday, we're at the beginning of a new section of Mark where Mark is laying out for us a series scenes of controversy between Jesus and people around him uh, regarding all kinds of different things, but mainly regarding various wrong expectations that people have about who Jesus is and about how he should act or live in these situations. And so as Jesus fails either to live up to their expectations or as he just outright violates their expectations, then these scenes of controversy just sort of erupt around those failed or, 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 or broken expectations. And so today we're going to look at the first of these wrong expectations and the controversy that erupts around it here in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And what I want to show you this morning is this, that controversy number one has to do with a wrong understanding of Jesus' divinity. Okay? You know what that means? It has to do with a wrong understanding of Jesus as God, whether or not he is God. And I want to show you what I mean by this by walking you through the story here in four parts and then making some observations and applications at the end. We'll begin by looking at the setting here in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. Mark begins this scene by just sort of setting up for us the situation as it stands so that as we get into it, we'll know what's happening and kind of figure out why. But he tells us a number of things here in the setting. First, he tells us that Jesus has come back to Capernaum. And if you were here uh, last year as we were working through Mark chapter 1, you know what Capernaum is. It's a, it's a little town up on the north, of the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And this becomes Jesus' home base during his time of public ministry, which I think people miss when they think about Jesus and his time on earth, because they think mostly of Jerusalem and Nazareth when they think of his ministry. But in reality, he spent very little time in Jerusalem, very, very little time. And the time he spent the most there was when he died, okay? It was right around his crucifixion. And he didn't really spend that much time in Nazareth in terms of his public ministry there either. He grew up there. He was a carpenter there. We know that his family's from there. He's called Jesus of Nazareth. But it's not where he spends a lot of time. Now, the majority of his public ministry is spent in and around the city of Capernaum, not, not those other towns. So he's coming back home. Second, Mark tells us that this return happened after some days, simply meaning that everything we just read in Mark chapter 1, there, there's been some, some time that's elapsed between that and where we're at now. Time has passed, Jesus has left, he went out and he preached in some other towns, and now he's come back home. Third, Mark seems to imply that Jesus snuck back into town. And I don't like using the word snuck because I feel like it's kind of demeaning to Jesus and I'm not intending it that way. I'm simply getting this from how he words the end of verse 1 here when he says, after he come back to Capernaum after some time, it was reported that he was home. Meaning he somehow got into the house and no one knew about it and eventually people find out. And once they found out, they begin to to tell other people. Uh, And you think, well, why would he sneak back into town, do you know? Do you remember what happened the last time he was there? He performed some miracles, he healed some people, he cast out some demons, and the next morning he goes out to pray, and he can't even pray in peace. Instantly, the whole town is looking for him. They want him to come and do some more miracles, and what did he do? Did he stay or did he go? Which one? He went, right. 
He left town. He said, I'm leaving because I need to preach. That is why I came. Let's go to the other towns. He's not going to be Capernaum's mascot. And so who can blame him for wanting to come back home a little bit quietly? His last time here wasn't so great, but, but now the word is out and so forth. Notice the crowds that are gathered to hear him preach. Whether by their choosing or not, this time the situation is a little different. Because the last time the crowds gathered around his house, it was for healing. It was to cast out demons. This time, it says he's preaching the word to them. I don't know if he just said, look, I know why you're here, but sit down, we're having a lesson first. Or this time they realized they were wrong, and can you teach us some more? And they came asking for it. Who knows? It doesn't matter. There are so many people here listening to him preach that the house is completely full and the crowd is spilling over out, out the door. That's, that's part one, the setting. Pretty simple. Part two, then, is this act of faith that we see in verses three and four. Because into this scene, then, we introduce five new characters. First, you have a paralytic man. And I know I probably shouldn't state the obvious, but I'll state it because there's always someone who doesn't know what that means or doesn't get the obvious. This guy is paralyzed. Okay? Get it? He can't walk. Either he's partially paralyzed or he's fully paralyzed one way or the other. He can't get there on his own. He's bedridden. And so along with this man, you have these four other men, these friends or family members, whoever they are, who obviously love this man enough to carry him in his bed down the streets of Capernaum to wherever it is Jesus is staying so that Jesus can heal him. But Mark tells us that when they get to the house, they have a problem, right? What's the problem when they get to the house? Well, it's the crowds. They can't get their friend to Jesus because of the crowd. And pause, and can I run down a rabbit trail just for a moment that's kind of unrelated to this, to our message? It's interesting, and I I haven't fully finished studying this out yet, so if I end up being wrong, this is not quite as, as cut and dry as I think it is, forgive me. But I think that every time you see crowds in the book of Mark, They're at best neutral towards Jesus, or at worst, they're against him. What I mean by that is when when a crowd gathers around him, you never read of an incident in Mark, or any other gospel for that matter, where crowds repent. You never read of an incident where crowds believe in him. You, You might read incidents where crowds come to hear him teach, where they come to be healed, where they come to be fed. Those are all kind of neutral. They're not really positive, but they're not really negative either. They're just, they're just there. Or you read about incidents where the crowds take him to throw him off the cliff. Or the crowds come and they ask him to leave their land. Or the crowds stand outside of Pilate's house and call for his crucifixion. Crowds in the Gospels are not normally positive. In Mark, I don't think they're ever positive. They're either at best neutral or at worst they're negative and here i think the crowd is a negative thing in that it is acting as a barrier for these men and their paralyzed friend and so what do they do well mark tells us that they go up on the roof they make a hole in the roof and they lower the man down in front of jesus and i want to make sure that you understand the scene because i don't know how you picture it I've always pictured it growing up when you hear about this. I think, wow, <laughs> what a destructive act. I wonder if they had homeowner's insurance. Like, you know, how does, how does this work? 
But, but you need to understand that in first century Palestine, a house is, is only as big as the trees you can find to form the roof, okay? You get that? Because you can't make a house longer than a tree you have to, to span it. And so houses are typically rather small. They're not, not going to be big. They're going to be rather small. There's no ventilation, no air conditioning. There's no deodorant, no showers, no soap. There's livestock. There's sweat. <laughs> Your house is probably not the place you actually want to spend much time in in first century Palestine. And so for most houses, the roof of the house acted as like a deck slash second living space. That makes sense. There there was normally a set of stairs that went up to it, and you could use this to eat, to sleep on at night if the weather's good, to entertain people, to have guests stay at, just to rest on. It's it's a, a second living space slash deck for us and and the the way this thing was built is you would put your stone walls up and you'd have your timbers that you were going to use for the main support beams however long you could find and you lay those across the the walls and then across the timbers you put smaller sticks branches longer reeds that are strong enough you put them across there on top of that you put a layer of grass and brush and other reeds maybe that could lay across that then on top of that you would sometimes if you were wealthy enough put tiles, clay tiles that would rest on top of all of that so you have some firmness as you walk around on it. And then to top it all off is mortar, which is just a good word for mud, okay? That's what you put on your house. This is how you build your roof. And it's strong, strong enough for you to host a party up there, strong enough for people to be walking around on and, and, and living on even. But it's mud and grass and sticks, Meaning, it doesn't have a 20-year guarantee. About every year, if weather was normal, they estimate, you would have to replace your roof. And so when you see these men come and do this, you need to make sure you understand the culture and the setting and all those things correctly. Yes, they are being destructive. We get that. They're breaking open a roof to get down inside. It's not like it never happens. And I'm hoping they came back the next day and fixed it, if you're wondering though Mark doesn't tell us. All they're doing is making a hole big enough to lower their friend through so that they can get to Jesus. They've they've taken a really dramatic step here, haven't they? You just think about that. We can't get in through the door. There's too many people. What's our other option? Oh, let's go up the roof and we'll dig a hole in it and drop it down. And you just picture Jesus down there as like dust starts falling through and everyone's looking. Act of faith. Why do you call it that? Well, I call it that because of part three, the response of Jesus in chapter two, verse five. Mark writes that Jesus saw their faith. Just stop right there and think about that. He saw their faith. See, normally when we talk about faith, when we talk about our beliefs, we think of it as an internal thing, right? I believe this in my mind. I believe it in my heart. And you can't see what I believe. And yet here... Jesus sees something that is normally unseen. Here you see faith in action, and Jesus sees it too. These men clearly believe that Jesus can heal their friend, clearly. They believe it so strongly that they're willing to go to any lengths, breaking through the roof of a house in order to get their friend to him. Their their faith isn't just some quiet, internal thing that, they just find inner strength. Feel real enough to motivate them 
go work, to go do something. It's on display here for everyone to see. And because they believe, then they act. And notice how Jesus responds to this act of faith. When he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, rise up and walk. Right? No. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this isn't what we would normally expect in this situation, is it? I mean, we would expect Jesus here to heal the disease, not not to forgive the sins. And so you're forced to ask the question, well, why did he do this? Why does he say this to the man? He doesn't say this, mind you, to any other sick person who comes to him. All these other sick people are going to come after this incident, and he's going to heal their diseases, but he's not going to forgive their sins. Why, why in this particular case? Well, there are multiple theories out there for why he did this, and I could go through them with you, but in the end, I can't tell you which one's right or wrong. What I can tell you is this, is that Jesus isn't the kind of person who throws rocks at hornet's nests for fun. What he's about to say is going to become the basis of his very first run-in with the scribes and Pharisees. And, and some people think that he's doing this just to like goad them, get under their skin. I don't, I don't know. I don't see Jesus like that. He's doing this for a reason. I know it's not just for fun. It's a statement that needs to be made. He doesn't walk into it accidentally. And so something about this, it, for whatever reason or purpose, there's something about this where this is needed and necessary. And based on this man's faith in him, Jesus forgives this man's sins there on the spot, which leads to part four, the controversy. This is what all of this has been building to, right? He's forgiven this man's sins, and now we're going to watch the thing erupt. Because Mark tells us that there are some scribes that are sitting there, and when they hear Jesus say this, they question in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And as you hear those questions, I want you to remember who's asking them. These are the religious elite. These are the religious leaders of their day. And when they hear Jesus say this, immediately they begin to process his statement based on what they know about Jesus and what they know about God's law and God's commands. Clearly, clearly they believe that Jesus is just a man, right? Just a man. You get that? Right there, they think he's just a man. And you see that even in their very first statement. Why does this man speak like that? They think he's just a man. And because they believe him to be just another man, they rightly charge him with blasphemy. Because to make oneself equal with God is is the epitome of blasphemy. And we hear the word blasphemy, and I don't think it really, um, it doesn't really affect us too much. Because we've used it even in joking ways probably in the past. Oh, you're blasting. I I try to think of a modern word that would carry the same, just like, with it when when you say it. If I charged you with genocide, you'd be like, whoa. (laughs) Genocide's a strong word. We don't just, you know, no one jokes. Who jokes about genocide, right? That's a strong word. This is stronger than that in their culture. He's blaspheming. Blasphemy is a capital offense. This is the very thing that in the end of Mark's story, Jesus will be put to death for. A 
A charge of blasphemy will be the grounds of his crucifixion. And if he's just a man, as the scribes believe he is, and their charge against him is right because their theology that they put on display here and their knowledge of the scriptures that they put on display here, it's sound. Who can forgive sins but God alone? See, they understand the scriptures rightly. Only God can forgive sins. No one else. They're right, aren't they? Aren't they speaking truth here? The answer is yes, they are speaking truth here. There's no pastor, no priest, no prophet, no witch doctor, no guru, no one, no man who can forgive sins. Only God can do that. Their theology is dead on accurate. If they're right in their understanding of who Jesus is, if he's just a man, then he has just blasphemed because only God can forgive sins. But if they're wrong, well, then we'll see what happens. Mark tells us that after they think these things, just think them, they don't say them, they just think them, immediately Jesus knew what they were thinking. Isn't that amazing? Immediately. These thoughts, these questions, these accusations, they're not verbalized, and yet Jesus knows what's on their hearts. And so he says to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk and stop and realize that that's a fair question? Which is easier? I mean, I can come up to you and say, hey, uh, your sins are forgiven. But that's a statement that you can't empirically prove or disprove, right? If I come up and say, your sins are forgiven, what evidence are you going to look to out here that we can see, touch, and examine that will prove or disprove that statement? There's none. Because that's a spiritual transaction. It's not something you can see. So it's way, way, way easier to say to this man, uh, your sins are forgiven, than it is to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And what happens? He rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. In order to prove to them all that the easier thing was true, the easier thing being his forgiveness of sin, Jesus does the harder thing before their eyes. He tells a paralyzed man, hey, get up, pick up your bed, and, and walk home. And the man does. He just holds it up and out the door. He goes before them all. I love Mark's detail. Before them all, right past the scribes, before them all, he goes home carrying his bed with him. But, but in our wonder at that part of the story, which is where our minds instantly like gravitate towards, we, we tend to forget the reason why Jesus did this, which is back in verse 10. Notice there that Jesus tells the crowd why he's about to do what he does. By healing this man, he wants to show them that he has authority. Recognize that word? He has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's the point of everything that's happened here. To prove that he has the authority to forgive sins. Think about this with me. This is the third time now that we've seen this, right? The first time we saw him have authority was in his teaching back in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. 
Then we saw, excuse me, 21 22. Then we see it a second time when he has authority over demons and over sickness in 1 23 to 34. And now, now we see that his authority extends even beyond that to sin itself. Now, you're smart. Use some logic with me for a moment. If Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, which now we see he does, if he has the authority to forgive sins, and if only God can forgive sins, then conclusion, therefore, what? Jesus is God. You follow that? If, if Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, which is what he's proven here in this episode, and if the, the scribes are right, which they are, that only God can forgive sins, then the only logical conclusion to come out of this story is that Jesus is God, which is why I told you at the beginning that this first controversy has to do with a wrong understanding of the divinity of Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees are sitting there and they see this guy teaching them and they're like, he's just a man. He's just a man like us. They don't believe he's God come in human form. They don't believe in his divinity. And because of that, they don't believe that he has the power to do any of the things he says he does and that he actually does. I mean, just think ahead in the story of the Gospels. Eventually, they're going to come to him, and they're going to see him casting out demons, and they're going to say, you only cast out demons by the power of what? Do you remember? Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Your, your power to cast out demons isn't because you're God. It's because somehow you're connected to the prince of the demons. And they're going to see him healing people at some point, right? And they're going to come up to him and they're going to say, oh, these people you're healing, they're liars and charlatans. They're going to bring some of these people in and question them before their councils. Who are you? How long have you been sick? Is this real? They're going to think he's Benny Hinn in, in, in first century Palestine, right? Bringing in all the fake people and healing them. They're, they're going to constantly look for the other possible ways that he's doing these things. They don't believe he's the Messiah. He doesn't meet any of their expectations, and therefore, they don't believe he's God. Mark wants to show you that he is. That's his point here. Because regardless of their expectations for what the Messiah would look like and do, regardless of their personal opinions and preferences about what the Messiah would do, this is God come in human form right here in Mark chapter 2. Now, when I apply this section to us in our modern context, and I was trying to think, I mean, Mark's point is clear. It is clear as clear can be. Jesus is God. Okay, this is it. He is God, and therefore, because he's God, he has the authority to forgive sins. When I compare that, his situation to ours, I see there are some things both in common and a little bit different. You see, we too proclaim the same message, right? That, that's at the very core of the gospel, that only God can forgive sins and that Jesus is God. There you go. When you're, when you're proclaiming the gospel to people, that's really what you're trying to get at. And in that sense, our situation is exactly the same as that of Mark's. He's trying to communicate to his original audience, his original readers, those same two truths through this story that, that only God can forgive sins. And that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, he's not like any other man. He's God. But, but here's where our situation's a little different. Because my guess is that for his original readers, his original audience, least agreed with the first of those two premises. Like, you know, for example, here are the scribes. They agree with premise one, that only God can forgive sins. 
They accept the reality of God, and they accept the reality of sin. And so Mark here in the story, he doesn't, he doesn't even have to argue either of those points. The people, they just accept those realities right from the start. No, he's, he's spending his time trying to prove the second part, that Jesus is God. Proof on display is that he heals a paralytic man. So that's where he focuses his time. Well, we're trying to do the same thing, but I'd like to remind you this morning that many of the people you speak with on a daily basis, they won't even accept premise number one, that only God can forgive sins. I mean, they might believe in some form of a, a supernatural power poll. Every poll that's taken shows that Americans do enforce, like 93, 95% of Americans believe in God. And we hear that and we're like, yay, it's a Christian nation. Except you and I both know the God that most people believe in is not the God of the Scripture. It's not. It's a God of their imagination. or It's a God of their preferences and opinions. He is not authoritative in their life, nor is he supreme. And you can prove that for yourself by asking them about the second component of that first premise, the reality of Do they believe? Because the concept of an absolute moral law that is given by an absolute moral law is repugnant to most people. They don't want to be told that God doesn't love them just as they are, and they don't want to be judged by him for their sins and rebellion. They just don't. Their God isn't like that. Their God accepts them and others no matter what. And since that's the case, what's the need of a Savior? If that's the case, then what's the need for forgiveness and grace and mercy? That, see, this is what I mean when I say to you that our situation isn't exactly like Mark's in this sense. Because we proclaim the same truths that, that only God can forgive sins and Jesus is God. But, but we proclaim it to a crowd who has a different set of ears than, than perhaps what we see here in this story. And I wish I could give you some neat trick to make those conversations easier. Like when you're in that situation, someone isn't, isn't agreeing with you or doesn't believe the same things you believe, here's what you should do. But there is no easy way around that. Paul tells us, because the situation is not completely different. I don't want to make it sound like this. Paul tells us that the gospel is two things, foolishness and an offense. He's not a very good salesperson to come be a part of this this religion over here that that proclaims an offensive foolish message everyone get in line the gospel is foolishness and an offense and if you attempt to make it wiser sounding if you try to make it less offensive i'm telling you what you're going to do the only way that happens is if you change the gospel and that is a sin of eternal proportions You see, there is a God who has revealed himself to us through his son and through his word. And this God is holy and righteous and just, is he not? And and we have sinned against him. We have violated his laws. We have rebelled against his rule and reign. And therefore, because of his holiness and his righteousness and his justice, he must punish sin. That's offensive. That is offensive to everyone. But, but, because of his great love and mercy and grace, he sent his son, a man named Jesus of Nazareth, 
to earth as a man so that he could live a sinless life and die a sacrificial death on our behalf for our sins and rise triumphant over Satan's sin and death forever. And because Jesus rose and conquered the penalty of sin, conquered them forever, everyone who repents of their sins and everyone who believes and places all their hope, faith, and trust in Jesus alone is forgiven. That's foolish to most people who hear it. That message may offend some and it may sound like foolishness to others. But as Paul says in Romans, to those who believe, it's the power of God for salvation. And so whether you see that message as controversial or not, and I I know in this room, there's no way, no way everyone in this room is a believer. I, I know that. Whether you see that message as controversial or not, this is Mark's point. You believe it or reject it. This is his point. This is his message. This is the message we proclaim as well. And so I challenge us this morning. Let's go proclaim it. Will you pray with me? Jesus, our message is clear. Only God can forgive sins, and you are God. And that message may be rejected, but it is not to be trifled with. We've seen that both last Sunday and again today. This is Mark's point. He wants us to understand that you are God. The scribes don't believe it here in this story. They don't believe that you have the authority, the right and power to forgive sins. And yet we see it very clearly. You do because you are God. And so as we go forth and we proclaim and we talk to people, Lord, let us not be content with simply talking to them about God. Because I don't know what that means. Let's not be content just to talk to them about spiritual things because I don't know what that means. Let's talk to them about the foolishness and the offensiveness of Jesus. Give us boldness and courage and power and opportunity and clarity of mind and clarity of speech, not relying on our wisdom, not relying on our power, but relying on the power of the gospel to proclaim a message that is in itself power. And then if they reject it, they reject it. And if they believe it, then praise the Lord, they believe it. But that is in your hands, not ours. And so, Lord, will you help us to be faithful messengers, faithful ambassadors, faithful proclaimers of this gospel, this truth that only God can forgive sins and you, Lord, are God. Thank you for coming to earth. Thank you for dying and rising from the dead. All of our hope is in you. We are complete in you as we're about to sing, Lord. Thank you for all you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.